Hello, this is Laura Garrard, Young Birder Programs Coordinator with the American Birding Association. For the past 25 years, the ABA has been inspiring young people to explore the world of birding through camps, mentoring programs, and publication of The Fledgling, a magazine where young birders can see their articles and photos in print. Our goal is to create a holistic approach to engaging young people in birding and conservation through art, science, and conservation and community leadership programs, allowing them to choose how they participate along the way. With your donation today, you can help us continue the work of supporting young birders into the future. Please donate online at aba.org appeal or call us at 800-850-2473. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick. I'm excited to bring you the panel discussion from the Drexel University Academy of Natural Sciences Cheryl Beth Silverman Memorial Lecture Series from a couple weeks ago. Thank you so much to the Academy for permission to use the recording in this way. It was a really great event. I'm glad those of you who weren't able to attend can hear it. But First, a couple bits of news to report. The San Francisco ABA Community Weekend is on for the weekend of June 17th and 18th. I will be out there. We're working with Golden Gate Audubon and Leica to host bird walks and a couple workshops that weekend. Yes, I know it's Father's Day, but bring your dad. Or if you are a dad, bring your kids. The link to sign up for these free events will be in the show notes. I know it's short notice, but if you're in the area please consider joining us. And last, certainly not least, we are in the middle of our nesting season appeal, one of our two big fundraising events of the year. Yes, the ABA is a membership organization and we certainly appreciate your membership very much, but also we require your generous donation for our programming. In this case, we are raising money to support our fantastic young birder programs. They are life-changing to those kids who participate, and you can help those programs continue to change the lives of young birders with a donation. You can do that at aba.org appeal. Thank you very much. All right, on to the good stuff. The Academy of Natural Sciences Cheryl Beth Silverman Lecture Series for the Love of Birds, right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of May 2023. We start up in Montana, which is having something of a moment this week with a number of noteworthy birds, including white-tailed kite, Virginia's warbler, Connecticut warbler, white-eyed vireo, all species for which there are fewer than five records for the state, highlighted by a Montana first Scots Oriole visiting a feeder in Beaverhead County. This is, for Montana birders, a long-awaited addition to the state list, but no less exciting considering that. Over to Pennsylvania, where that state's first record of mottled duck was seen in Washington County. It was identified as an American black duck for a few days before its correct identification was sussed out, thankfully. It also stuck around for birders to enjoy after all that. And down to Arizona, where the ABA areas and Arizona's second record of gray-collared Picard was seen at South Fork Canyon in the Chiricahuas. That's Cochise County. The species is widespread in Mexico and northern Central America and is a noted elevational migrant that regularly comes quite close to the Arizona and Texas borders. Notably, the ABA area's first record from 2009 was at the very same location and at nearly the very same time of year, early June then to late May now. 
Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash RBA. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. And now, the Cheryl Beth Silverman Memorial Lecture Series for the Love of Birds, hosted by Maurice Baynard. And here is Maurice. Thank you all. Good evening. All right. Welcome, birders. Those that love birds and those that love those that love birds. <laughs> it's really, really good to see you all. It is a real honor. Thank you, ABA. Um, thank you, Silvermans. It's a real honor in the memory of their daughter um, to moderate this really important discussion about how people get inspired by birds and how that is a gateway to the natural world. It's something that we think about and try to do every day here at the Academy. And so, um, welcome to our big mission. I'd like to introduce um, our really illustrious panel, which we've been calling the charismatic macrofauna of, of the birding world this evening. I am going to get my screen up. There we go. Our first panelist this evening, Holly Merker. Holly, come on up. Holly is a professional birding guide, author, and lecturer with a background in art therapy, but today uses birds and nature towards the same goals, delivering nature-based wellness programs for people of all ages. Holly shares her love of birding guides for the American Birding Association, the National Audubon Association, Hillstar Nature, and many other organizations. She is a certified wellness counselor, certified nature and forest therapy guide, weaving birds into both of these fields. Holly is a global advocate for the practice of mindful birding, authoring two books which guide readers into optimizing the wellness benefits birds provide us, including the award-winning Ornotherapy for Your Mind, Body, and Soul, along with Richard and Sophie Crossley, and The Power of Bird Watching, co-authored by Dr. Angelica Nelson. In 2002, Holly was honored to be the recipient of the ABA Conservation and Education Award given by that organization for her work in both of those areas involving birds. Holly Merker, one more time. Anwar Abdul Kui. I'm going to invite Anwar to the stage. Anwar is a zoologist, conservation edu educator, photographer, animal keeper, and all of that based here in Philadelphia. He's also the Academy's own. Since 2010, he has worked with both people and animals finding new ways to inspire the public about the world and the millions of species that reside there. Whether it's on this stage or behind the scenes, in classrooms or in the field, you can be sure you'll find Anwar there and doing something really important. Searching for new ways to further himself, Anwar has taken the lead role as lead keeper and educator, connecting the general public to the importance of conservation right here at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University. We're, we're really proud to have him. Nate Swick, if you could join us up here. Through the wide-reaching and popular 
American Birding Podcast, Nate Swick, has many has in many respects become the voice of the ABA and perhaps one of the most recognized voices in the birding world. His excellent, thoughtful, fun interviews cover a variety of topics of interest to birders and include popular recurring segments like This Month in Birding and The Birding Book Club. The show is consistently amongst the highest ranked podcasts in the competitive space of nature podcasting. In addition to all of that, um, Nate's co-host of the ABA's popular What's This Word Live web program and the author of A Beginning Guide to Burning, Birding and the ABA Field Guide to Birds of the Carolinas. Nate's work has been essential to the ABA's success in harnessing opportunities to connect with birders everywhere using both new media and old media, as if these achievements weren't enough. Nate's Pun Lace podcast outros, which we know are the hardest part of the podcast, have to be just about the most recognized sign-off in all of birding. Could you guys give Nate a hand? Thank you all for being here. So we're going to get started. Um, I would love to ask about all of your origin stories. Holly, we'll start with you. Okay. How did you really get into birding? What turned you on? Yeah, well, like Cheryl Beth Silverman, I too was a girl that was entranced by nature from a very young age. And I could find myself outdoors looking at every and anything. And then I noticed that birdsong was part of my soundtrack of where I lived, and I felt myself connected to these areas through the songs of birds. As I grew older, I really hadn't met anybody who liked birds. I kind of was embarrassed to admit it, quite honestly. But when I got into college, I met some other friends who admitted that they, too, like birds. We started doing some field trips up to Hawk Mountain Sanctuary here in Pennsylvania. Um, and shortly after I got married, I found myself putting up a bird feeder because I didn't know anybody in my new town. But I could get to know the birds. And they took the edge off the isolation and the loneliness that I felt, the, the missing family members. They became my family. But then one day, I learned that there were common loons about a mile from my house because I lived in Virginia Beach, Virginia at the time, and I couldn't believe it. And this started my journey as a birder where I was leaving my own backyard and seeking birds outside of my little immediate neighborhood. And so that was my deep dive, and I'm still diving deeper. I love the, the birds became my family. Yeah, it's so true. So I've always had a passion for wildlife, same exact thing. Uh, as a kid, I would go out with my dad, collect bugs and uh, reptiles and stuff like that, birds. My mom wasn't, wasn't really the biggest fan of all that, but we still loved it regardless. So growing up in my mind, I was like, I'm going to be a zoologist when I grow up. I watched a lot of Steve Irwin, of course, out of Animal Planet. So I had it set as a kid. So I had my first high school interview in my neighborhood school, and I went to the principal, and his uh, interviews were all there. And he said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, I want to be a zoologist. And it was just quiet. And they all started laughing. And I was like, what's so funny? 
And he looked at me and he said, zoology, you know, it's a really hard field to get into. You know, it's really, uh, it's a lot of work. It's really challenging. But instead, you have a nice pair of long legs. You should join our basketball team instead. So I was told that, you know, I kind of cried on the way home. I was like, oh, maybe I should just, at that young age, you know, having someone tell you that, you know, your dream is stupid. You should just play basketball. My mom just said, don't worry. You'll find out. You'll find your way. That wasn't your time yet. Luckily, a couple of weeks later, I found another high school to go to, and they actually introduced me to working here at the academy. So I've been here almost about over a decade. I started off as a high school volunteer in a live animal center. I graduated college, came back as a part-timer. Now I'm a manager here and outside in. And uh, as far as the birding, I would go out and collect dead birds. As weird as that sound, I would walk around the city. People would give me strange looks. I'd just pick up things. I'd be like, why are there so many dead birds in the city? And I would bring them into ornithology. They're, they'd be excited to uh, all these uh, finding, finding all these birds that I've brought in. And when the pandemic hit, unfortunately, I had to kind of stop doing that. I had, had no way of like, uh, I'd, the birds couldn't really go anywhere. So I discovered photography. I said, hey, I want to, you know, change up my life. I don't want to just keep, you know, going to work and going back home. I want to just go out biking and hiking and exploring and go to John Hines, Hawk Mountain, Wissahickon. And I was like, there's so much right here in Philadelphia. People just think that you have to travel across the world to find stuff. There's so much right here in the city. And uh, that's how I started. So I bought a, I got into stocks when everything was going kind of crazy, bought a cheap little camera, got really addicted. And uh, that's me now. <laughs> but I love it. So it's just, that's, yeah, that's how that's, that's going. Yeah, well, I love the fact that most of us gained pounds during the pandemic <laughs> and you gained a telephoto lens. Yes, that's that, fantastic. That's, uh, that's, that's uh, great. Yeah. And while we've got to find that principal who told you to play basketball. Uh, yeah, look at me and now. Take him on, and take him on a tour. We've got to get that guy. Nick? Nate? No. Oh, wow. <laughs> you, you are not the first. You there are hardly is. the first. <laughs> no oh, worries. Nate, go for it. Uh, you, right, you, have the, you have the job I wanted when I was a, I was a kid, so good on you. Um, I started uh, as a young person, I guess, like, like the stories that, that Holly and Anwar have told, I was a part of a family that spent a lot of time outdoors. My dad was a um, middle school science teacher. So we were already sort of inclined to spend a lot of time outdoors. We, we lived kind of way out of town. We went canoeing a lot and hiking and, and of course, looking for all sorts of critters wherever we could find them. Um, so I, I was always really interested in that. I started uh, keeping an insect collection as a young person. I would spend a lot of time looking for box turtles and snakes and stuff uh, in the woods around my house. And I just kind of naturally got into birds as an extension of all that. It helped that we had a lot of field guides around the house. So my dad was a collector of those sorts of things as a science teacher. You never know what a kid is gonna get interested in. And so we had all these field guides around. And, and so I started looking through bird field guides and sort of making connections with the stuff that I was seeing out my back door. And of course, my dad was a kind of an all around nature guy. Uh, he very quickly took to birding as well as my driver a lot of times. And so we started traveling around a little more extensively, got involved in the local birding community. And uh, I guess it just kind of, you know, steamrolled from there. Um, I, I kind of, when I got into high school, I kind of backed away and started doing kind of normal high school things. Um, but after that was over, I came back to birding in a big way. I uh, started riding online, uh, traveling to see birds in my, my new, where I lived in North Carolina. I grew up in the Missouri Ozarks, which is a fantastic place to grow up if you're interested in nature. And uh, got involved in the ABA and it's just kind of all gone from there. Um, I can't remember a time when I wasn't interested in birds and birding and the stuff that's around me. And um, I never stopped being interested in, in bugs and snakes and all that stuff too. I love that stuff almost as much as I love birds. But birds is just a, 
a natural extension of an interest in nature because one, there's that community that's already sort of built up. There are these bird clubs all over the country where you can get engaged with a lot of other people who are interested in birding. Um, there's there are field guides to birds at the time when I started getting interested in in nature, there were not a lot of field guides to reptiles and certainly not any very extensive field guides to bugs and stuff. Um, it's a little overwhelming. If you've ever tried to identify uh, insects, there's a lot of them. Even something as simple as a fly in your house can take you down a path that you did not expect. Um, and, you know, reptiles are almost the other way. They're, they're hard to find. There aren't very many of them. They require a lot of work. Birds are like this perfect middle ground. There's a lot of birds all around you. Um, and there's all this kind of infrastructure already set up for people who are interested in it to kind of take it to the next level. And, and I did. And here I am. Culminating, obviously, in a panel discussion here in uh, in Philadelphia, and being the voice of the ABA. Yeah, I suppose. There yeah, it is. So, so they say. Birds, the perfect middle ground. That's that's, that's the right. name of my next yeah. book. So, Anwar, um, I'm going to start with you, uh, and I don't want to pigeonhole you. I, I'm not going to call you the youngest person on the panel, but you do have the best social media following, and probably the best Instagram feed. So most young people spend a lot of time looking down on their phones and on their tablets. So tell me, what can birding offer that you can't find on your digital device? And are there ways that those two things don't compete against one another, but can enhance one another? Yeah, so I always say like, um, pictures never really tell the full story. People like see a picture of a bird or anything. And they're like, wow, it's a cool picture. And they just move on and swipe. But it doesn't really tell the full story of the hours that was spent out in the field. You know, the smells, the textures, you know, the sun beating on you, the mosquitoes biting at you, you know. It's a lot of, you know, emotion. It's a lot of just energy being out in the field that comes with taking that picture. So um, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I kind of struggle with that even here at the academy as an educator. A lot of kids, their attention span is kind of shortening through like, you know, TikTok and stuff. It's really getting hard to really grab people's attention nowadays. So it's a lot of it is just, you know, using a trend, finding trends that people are into and just, it's still there. It's, it's still surviving. People still uh, are, you know, I try to find ways that have animals that are people that you see every single day and try to highlight them in different lights. So if I can find a pigeon, I can find like a, a basic bird you might find on the street. How can I turn this animal into something that you may look at in a different perspective and, and as such? So we're, we're still trying. Uh, kids, uh, people reach out to me on social media. I've reached over 130,000 followers in a couple of months through the pandemic because people must like my photography and stuff like that. And a lot of like, younger kids from around the world to reach out and say, I started my journey because of you. I saw your pictures. I look at my pictures, am I doing a good job too? I'm like, you're doing just great. So it's really cool that there are still kids who are on social media who want to also kind of be, see people like me who are kind of young doing stuff in the field. And I love that. So. Nate, it seems like, so Anwar works in the visual medium. You work in the audio medium and the visual medium. You have a YouTube uh, channel. So are people tuning in more and more? And if so, is that helpful? Like, are they competing? Are you competing with folks going outside into the natural world? Or are you just enhancing it? I, I, I like to think that we're enhancing it more than competing it. Uh, you, you can't go burning 24 hours a day. There's going to be some downtime. There's going to be time for them, people to be in the car and listen to a podcast or, or you know, take a, an hour out of their lunch break on a weekday and, and watch us do a What's This Bird? Um, the birding is really fantastic because there's, there's this outdoor aspect, which is sort of the core experience of of a bird watcher. I mean, that's where we that's where we actually do our thing. But you know, there's so much information out there and so much learning that can take place outside of it at home. I, I think of my own 
sort of birding experiences. Um, I learned so much about birds just by flipping through field guides at home. You know, I have these out on my coffee table, they're in my bookshelf. When I'm not doing anything else, I can pull a field guide down and I can flip through it and I can learn that way too. I, I think of the, the sort of new media, um, I mean, podcast is kind of a new way of an old media, radio's been around forever, but you know, these, these are just different sort of ways to engage in your birding interests. And, and I like to think of birding as not necessarily a pastime. In many ways, it's a lifestyle. Right, so we are we are birding all the time. We're constantly thinking about birds. It's a little disturbing, to be honest, but we are we're always sort of engaging and looking for ways to engage with birds in a ways that's meaningful to us. And and by whatever we can always through the podcast, I feel like I'm helping people do that outside of the field. So. Well, I think the the soundbite there is it's a lifestyle. Oh yeah, no doubt. It is. <laughs> I have a hard time kind of think about what birding is when people ask about what birding and why I, why I'm birding. And you know, I, I always feel weird calling it like a hobby. It's not really a hobby. It is a hobby, but it's not, it's more than that. You know, birding is bird watching. The bird watching community is my community. It's my people. It's, it's the people I enjoy being with and engaging with. And, and there are so many different ways to do that. Um, outside of just going out and looking at birds in the field and, and, yeah, it's it's a lifestyle. It's yeah. it's what I how I, what I choose to engage with most of the time. So yeah. Nate's t-shirt is sleep, eat, bird. That's it. Repeat. That's all it is. Sleep. That's all it is. <laughs> eat, yeah. bird, Re repeat. Holly, what about you? How do you utilize um, sort of the new media to amplify all the things that you're doing in wellness and in birding? Yeah, well, I feel like this is a great era to be in for the birds because all of this digital media, whether it be through photography or podcasting or YouTube, all of this translates and it's able to be a language to draw more people in. And I think that we can look at uh, this evolution that's occurred and having the pandemic is sort of being a silver lining to this because then people had the opportunity to slow down and they were paying more attention to influencers like Anwar and, and also Nate. And uh, this in, in itself is um, good for people, right? So we can look at the digital media as perhaps being a distraction, but actually it's a fantastic conduit and connector. Uh, for people, and especially in light of conservation. So I view it as a wonderful tool. Um, in the last couple of years, the Cornell Lab of Ornithology has made some incredible advances uh, with smart uh, technology, AI, which is truly a game changer, and not just for birders, but for people who have never been exposed to birds. And all of a sudden, everybody can become aware um, through the Merlin bird ID, um, at, at, whether it be the sound or even photography. Also, we can learn so much through eBird, uh, using uh, eBird is the Cornell Lab's uh, data warehouse, if you will, that holds all of the information about where birds are on planet Earth at any given moment, and contributing to community science projects like this is therapeutic in itself because I don't know about for you all, but for me, there's just a little bit of eco-anxiety out there when we hear some of the dire numbers about species lost, not just with birds, but of within the natural world. But when I know I can do something to make a difference by contributing to community or citizen science, 
it makes me feel better. Like I can do something, I feel empowered. And so this is the digital connection that empowers us as conservationists, but also gives us a little bit of self-conservation because we're giving back towards ourselves in a beneficial way as well. So I love the idea of pushing back against all that bad news by doing something that's positive, by adding something to the world. I know you spent a lot of time thinking about the health benefits of birding in general. Mm -hmm. Say more, like what, what are they? Oh. And how do you unleash them in all of our lives? Yeah, well, you know, it's, they're immeasurable, really. And, and we are animals, right? And so our bodies are hardwired to need the natural world for our well-being. And we've gravitated away from recognizing this, although I'm optimistic. I do feel that the pendulum is starting to slide the other way. Um, and it's through events like this that we can connect people more to nature, show the beauty. You know, there are so many levels of this, whether we're talking about what birdsong can do. So when we talk about birdsong, and I was mentioning this before as part of an anchor to my childhood, well, there are many studies coming out. In fact, yesterday there was a Washington Post article about the benefits physiologically of listening to birdsong. Studies show that you can listen to birdsong for about six minutes and benefit from loosening anxiety's grip for about eight hours. Imagine that, eight hours just by listening to six minutes of birdsong. You don't even have to know what the birds are that are singing, which is pretty fantastic, which means that anybody can access this, right? And I see birds as very equitable components of nature because Birds are in every human habitat. I mean, just we could walk out the door right now at the academy. We're going to hear chimney swifts swirling over the city. We're going to see rock pigeons. We're going to see house sparrows, right? Um, it, it is magnificent when you think of the fact that they are right there for us, right? But also, in addition to the mental wellness benefits that birdsong contributes to, we know that being out in nature, even for 20 minutes, starts to lower our cortisol level. So yes, this means that we can offset some of the anxiety. Also, uh, we can have healthier metabolisms if we're just being in nature, being around birds. Um, I don't know about you, but just by having those sorts of benefits and the cardiac benefits, I think birds can help us live longer and healthier. Truly, when you start to look at the science, I mean, that's kind of saying that in jest, but actually the science behind this uh, indicates that we can be healthier by bringing birds into our lives. So uh, whether that be physically, because it gets us outdoors, we're, we're using our uh, motor skills, there truly is a mind-body connection. So um, multitude of benefits. I could sit here for an hour and talk to you about all of them, but uh, uh, you know, it, it's just this is one of the many things about birds that makes them so amazing. So Nate, let me toss that to you. Given the fact that there are all of these sort of physical benefits to birding, mm -hmm. how do we get more people involved? It seems like you're the biggest evangelist for this as an activity, as a lifestyle. How do we get more people in the room? That's a great question, and one that I've spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about. Um, and I love that what you said, Holly, because um, like I think it's something that all of us intuitively know when we spend time in the field. Like we can, you can actually physically feel yourself feeling better. And I like thinking about it in those terms is something that I hadn't done until I uh, listened to you talk about this. And, and yeah, I, I think we all know it. it. Like there's, you feel like a need to get out in the field, and because it calms you. 
and that's great. Um, how do we get people in the room? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> But I think that we've sort of, just by living this lifestyle and by being enthusiastic evangelists for birding, I think we're going to intuitively bring people in who are just interested in our interest. I think if you're passionate about something, you can't help but be excited about it. And there's a certain number of people that that's going to get really excited to. And um, yeah, I, I think there have been sort of stages in the last 10 years that have really uh, encouraged people to give birding a try to sort of us get beyond this sort of stereotype of uh, older white folks in khaki vests and uh, start, you know, expressing. We love those idea. khaki vests. No, don't, no, I love a khaki don't, vest. Don't, don't get away. Pockets. Don't get rid Can't of your no khaki vests. Can't get enough pockets. But um, I got a lot of things. I got to put it there. But um, you know, th there's a certain image of a bird watcher that people have when they when they see. You're a bird watcher, and it's important. We all for us have to that realize, picture in our head right now. We yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's important for us to get beyond that and to to show that bird birding is something that anyone can enjoy at any sort of level that they want to. If you're interested in birds, you're a birder. Don't have. There's not a right or wrong way to do it. You just should go out and enjoy birds and enjoy being in nature, and that's great. And um, there, I think the funnily enough, the the um, release of the movie The Pig Year. I think it was a huge like watershed moment for getting people engaged in birding. Like the movie did not do very well in, in Hollywood is a bit of a flop, but I cannot tell you how many people come up to me and tell me that they first got interested or they looked at birding a slightly different way because of the movie with Steve Martin and Jack Black, right? It's, it's wild. And, um, and also the pandemic, as you said, uh, uh, Holly, um, people are, People, it forced people to slow down. It forced people to stay home. It forced people to kind of look at their life differently. And I think that birding has been the beneficiary of a number, like a ton of great media, um, you know, touting birding as this sort of great pandemic hobby. And I can't tell you how many people I've had that started listening to the podcast because of the pandemic or started, um, you know, getting interested in birding in the pandemic and, or, or they found a social media group. They found a Facebook group for their for their state about birding. And it was just a bunch of people sharing really cool photos and talking about birding. Um, there, all these things have sort of contributed to this kind of moment that we're in where birding is getting a ton of great press. And, you know, I, I, I say, bring it. Like we need more people to get engaged in birding. It's fascinating. Like my ulterior motive, if I'm, you know, taking the, the lid off is that we need more people to be engaged in nature and all these environmental issues that we're all kind of dealing with and struggling with. And, and the more people we have engaged in that, the more people we're going to have to sort of you know, fight these battles, uh, for lack of a better word, that we're going to have to deal with. And um, I, want, I want that community to look like the greater community. I want there to be more people that feel comfortable in the birding world to do that. And um, yeah, I think, we're, I think we're getting there. I think we're at a moment now. I think we can all agree that we're, we're at a moment where it feels like that vision is, is we can see it. It's right there. Birding's having a moment. If we're, take, if we're taking a lid off, we'll do this lightning round. <laughs> Nate, big floppy birding hat, yes or no? Oh, uh, it depends on, the, depends on the situation. That's a yes. Okay. And we are, big floppy birding hat, yes or no? Uh, sure. Okay. Yeah, you're a fashionista. Big floppy birding hat. Heck yes no. no, I wear a cowboy hat <laughs> half the time. Hey, there it is. <laughs> Shout out to the cowboy hats. All right. I do have a question for you. you. I've heard you talk about the hours that it takes to get a good shot. So when a person is alone in nature by themselves four hours, what do you do? What are you thinking about? 
It, like both good and bad. What yeah. is that about? It's, it's definitely an experience. So like I, I don't have, I don't really join many birding groups because uh, sometimes they are great. To, uh, they're more of like a social activity, but sometimes with friends, people, I can talk. So if you're in, if you're talking, if you're, everyone's laughing, you're not going to really see a lot of things. You're going to distract the birds. So sometimes capturing those moments, you have to kind of be by yourself. And it's weird because you're alone, but you're not alone because you're out there in nature and you're by yourself, but there's still so much going around you. So I might have like a podcast going on. I might have like a music in my ear. I might just take all my headphones and just have the sounds of nature around me and everything like that. But um, it's just honestly just enjoying nature. When I, I always tell people that it's not about really taking, it's not about getting the best pictures. If you're a photographer, you might, you know, you can take bad pictures. Everyone takes bad pictures. I don't go out there with the mindset that I'm going to capture my award-winning shot. No, I go out there because I want to, I enjoy nature. So if I'm sitting in a, if I'm sitting in a river, if I'm sitting in the bush for a couple of hours and I'm just, you know, just hearing the sounds, seeing the bugs on the trees, you know, seeing the birds flying above and just hearing the noises of nature, it's just a satisfying moment and vibe. And I try to go out every single week to just kind of just cool down from the stress of my nine to five work. I love it here, but you know, it's pretty stressful, you know? So just taking, I advise everyone just to go out, you know, at least five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, go to a park, go somewhere and just sit and just hear the sounds of nature. And it'll definitely, like you said, it, it, it's healing. And if I don't do that, I'm cranky, I'm stressed. You have to do it. So those hours, I'm just, I'm just there. I'm just existing. I'm not out there with a goal. I'm just there to just exist, you know? Yeah. Just exist. So for each of you, what is your favorite birding encounter or experience what is the one that you might not have even shared in public before? The thing that was transcended. Holly. Wow. That's like asking me what my favorite kid is. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> well, that's the follow-up question. We'll get me. Oh, yeah, I mean, I've had so many of those moments. It's really hard to choose. I mean, um, hmm. I think one that I have to say really stands out for me, I, I come back to this often, and probably some of you have heard me share this before, but um, I'm a cancer survivor, and um, when I lost my hair due to chemotherapy, I was a young mom, and I wasn't sure how I was going to deal with that because my um, son was expressing a lot of anxiety over that idea of mommy being bald. And so when I lost my hair, I ended up saving it because I didn't, I didn't know what to do with it because it seemed weird to throw it away or, or keep it is even weirder, right? But, but there's a bird motive here because I remembered hearing that if you put hair out from your dog's hairbrush or even your own in spring, that maybe birds would take that hair and line their nest with it. So I thought, well, gosh, let me try an experiment. So I ended up putting my hair, uh, part of it anyway, into a suet cage. And I hung it outside my kitchen window while I was uh, going through all of this treatment, thinking maybe I'll get to the kitchen window once a day and... One of those days I got really lucky because as I was standing there looking at the suet cage, a tufted titmouse came in and started hopping all around the suet cage. And they're so curious, you know? So I noticed it started to tug, like try to pull little bits out. And then all of a sudden it carried away some strands of my hair. 
And for me, um, that just gave me so much hope. My worries and fears became so much less significant. I was able to find joy and in the fact that new life was going to be um, found and my lost hair was repurposing for that reason. And so for me, the tufted titmouse uh, just ignites joy in my heart and brings me so much hope. So that's a fantastic story. Thank, Thank, you, for you. Sure. Thank you. Who wants to follow? Um, for, for me, it, it happened pretty recently. So uh, the Academy sent me to Bioko, um, Equatorial Guinea. It was an amazing experience. First time flying overseas. And my, a lot of my friends were so jealous because uh, I have a friend who's a zookeeper at the Philadelphia Zoo, and she works with birds. And she's like, you're going to Africa. Give me a picture of a great blue Taraka. If you don't you do that, you can't come back home. So I was like, all right, cool. I got to find the Taraka. So I'm in Africa, and I'm asking her, I'm like, hey, where can I find Taracos? And everyone's like, oh, they fly around. I'm like, I don't see any. And I go to a certain part, and uh, these students are there, and they said, yeah, great blue Taracos fly in this part of the forest. Just go out, walk out there. And there's no guardrails. There's no guides. You're just just forest. So I'm, I'm out there in the morning. He said, wake up like 5 a.m. and just go for a walk. So I'm out there with my camera. A lot of birds are flying around. And I go to this open plain, and I just look up and see this. If you see with Taraco, they're massive. This giant shadow fly above my head, and a Taraco flies above my head, flies into a tree, and lands. And I'm like, my heart's racing. I'm like panicking, forgetting all my camera settings. You know, I got to calm down and everything. And I aim my camera up, get some shots. And it's one of those moments where like, in your mind it lasts forever, but it's like two seconds. If you know anything about birding, it, it's, it's really quick. Birds are fast. Get my shots, and I, my heart's racing. I'm like, did I get a shot? Is it in focus? Is it blurry? Did I miss it? You know, did I, did I screw up? All these things are going in my head. And a bird lands, get the picture, it flies off. I look at my camera, and I go through the pictures. I got one good one out of like all the 20 that I got. And I, uh, the internet was terrible, so I had to wait a while to tell my friend. I sent it to her. I was like, look what I got. She's like, good, you can come back home now. So it was one of those moments where just like seeing animals in captivity, or even animals that I work with here at the academy, it's one thing that you see them in captivity, but going out in nature and seeing them just in their local and natural habitat. So that was just a moment I'll never forget. So. Well, we are glad you made it back. That's great. Neat. Uh, I don't know whether I'm happy that I am going last um, because I had more time to think or I have to follow those two stories. But I'm, I'm trying to think of a time uh, when I was sort of forced, maybe even against my will a little bit, to be just really, really present in the moment uh, with a bird. And uh, I'm thinking uh, it was a relatively recent experience, too. This was last year, about a year ago uh, in April. I had the uh, good fortune to speak at a uh, Lesser Prairie Chicken Festival. And I don't know if any of you have been at a, uh, a Prairie Chicken Lek. Uh, it is a, a really incredible experience, not least of which because you have to get up at like 3.30 a.m. to get out to the Lek uh, before the birds, because you have to be in place before the sun comes up uh, so the birds don't you know, get uh, ticked off that you're there and, and don't come by. So we had to get up super, super early to drive out into the middle of nowhere, western Kansas, Gove County, Kansas. I'd, I'd be shocked if any of you have ever been to Gove County, Kansas. But um, so we were out there in the pre-dawn light. It's cold. It is so cold. Uh, and I was unprepared uh, for the cold. For the cold. This was in April. And where I live in North Carolina, it's, it's getting pretty warm by then. Uh, it was not in western Kansas. Um, but it was the most incredible sky I had ever seen in my entire life. Like... Uh, 
like just the darkest sky because we were so far out in the middle of nowhere, no cell reception, no none of that. Um, so we're walking out in the middle of this uh, field where uh, the prairie chicken like was. And so I'm, I just can't help looking at the sky. I, I, I've seen those kind of time-lapse photos of the Milky Way where you can see the bands of the Milky Way in the sky. And I always thought those were fake. I thought those were a trick of, of photography. But no, you can actually see it in Western Kansas. You can actually see the band of the Milky Way uh, going across the sky from horizon to horizon. It was the most incredible thing. And so we get out there and uh, it's in the middle of this field and there's no, there's no blind. We have to set up a blind. So we have this little Cabela's tent, uh, which was not much bigger than, um, you know, the, the three of us sitting right here. And we crammed like four people inside there and we're all sitting there and it's really cold. And I, I, to this day, I'm still not sure how the prairie chickens didn't notice us because it was this weird camouflage blind in the middle of a field, but they didn't care. And so we're, we're out there and the sun is starting to come up and you're starting to see, um, starting to see stuff as the, as the light increases. And um, you see these birds kind of running across between these tufts of grass back and forth. And like, oh, that's it. It's going to start. The show's going to start. And after a little bit, the light comes up a little bit, and you start hearing the sound of these prairie chickens doing their doing their display. And we were we were it was really cool. We were at a lek that had both greater prairie chicken and lesser prairie chicken at the same lek. There are not very many of those. And uh, you know the greater prairie chickens come out, and it's big, and this is kind of booming sound. It's like weird alien sound. And all of a sudden, you see it kind of coming out, and it's got the big orange uh, bubbles coming out of the side of its neck. And then the little lesser prairie chicken comes on and he's doing a little slightly different sound and he's doing his own, he's his own thing over here. And um, right in the middle, right between the greater prairie chicken displaying and the lesser prairie chicken displaying was a hybrid prairie chicken displaying um, who had, a, the, the color was not right for either greater or lesser and the sound he made was just like this weird squealing sound that did not sound like either of them. And I felt so sorry for the guy because there's no way a female prairie chicken of either uh, <laughs> species is going to be interested in that because it was, it was rough. Um, but it was this really cool experience. And I was there with my dad who had kind of started, I had kind of started birding with uh, when I was a young person. And I was there with a couple other people from Missouri that he knew. Um, and we were just kind of sitting there transfixed by this kind of show that's going on in front of you. And I'm not a very good photographer. Um, but, and so the light is not bright enough to take photos. So, and there's, there's no cell service, so you can't be on your phone. So you're just there, like watching these birds doing their thing. And uh, it was such a cool, weird experience. Um, and I, ah, I loved it. I, I encourage everyone to go out to Gove County, Kansas. It's a long way from everything, but it's, it's cool if you get out there. That was like a Disney Plus special with yeah. six episodes. <laughs> <laughs> or the best Gove County, Kansas yeah. advertisement I've ever heard. They're, they're sending me my check. It's in the mail. <laughs> we could do this all night. I could talk to you guys about this all evening. But we did want to provide an opportunity for folks to get questions in from the audience. It is your turn. We've got some microphones set up. And if you're... If you just want to raise your hand or walk to the mics, there we go. Well, thank you for your insights. So I live here in Philadelphia, and I've been here for about 10 years. And I've noticed this last couple of years, there's fewer and fewer birds flying around in the neighborhood. Maybe you could address that for me? Yes.
Well, uh, the short answer is that there probably are fewer birds, sadly. Um, there was a State of the Birds report that came out a few years ago that um, kind of raised the alarm for a lot of bird uh, populations is that a lot of them are, are declining. And there was, I recently saw one, I don't know if you all saw that, uh, mm-hmm. one about the Atlantic shorebirds declining. It's like, it seems like every other day there's, um, there's talk of, the, of declining bird populations. And, and the fact of the matter is, that the kind of brutal fact of the matter is, is that a lot of them are, are in fact declining. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, I, it's one of the reasons why I try to be so, you know, enthusiastic about getting people into birding because I do think that this is an ongoing concern and I think it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. And the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, this is sort of happening beyond what the general public sort of realizes. Like a lot of people don't really realize that the birds are declining, however slowly or quickly or whatever, because they just don't recognize the birds. And I think it's just crucially important to get people engaged in birds and birding so that people are not going to care about things unless they know about them. And you have to show them that this is happening or show them that well, you don't necessarily lead with that, but you start with the joy of going out and, and seeing these birds and the joy of being engaged in the birding community and, and being involved in a community of like-minded people who enjoy these things. And then you can kind of, you know, seed that in there and let them know that things aren't always so rosy. A lot of species are having a rough go of it and we, we definitely need, there are changes that we can make in our personal lives, in our, in the decisions we make, uh, in the, in the voting booth or in the, you know, from very local levels to all the way up to national levels that can affect these birds in a positive way that can help slow this decline. And, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of things out there that are, that are difficult for birds. They, they have to deal with a lot of stressors. Not only are, is there constant development, are there increasing numbers of, you know, habitat loss, but there are outdoor cats and there are windows that they smack into when they're migrating. And, you know, the eastern seaboard is, uh, I can't imagine what it's like to be a bird now as opposed to a, a bird 200 years ago. There's just so much light all the way from D.C. all the way up to, to Boston. I mean, it's, it's got to be rough, just completely disorienting. I mean, there are things that we can do and choices that we can make to, to help them. And I think that you got to get people engaged in birding to make those sort of choices palatable sometimes. And I don't think they're always difficult choices to make. A lot of them are things that people just don't know, you know, if they're ignorant of. And we can help in the birding community, in the environmental advocacy community to, um, to you know, help people make those choices um, that need to be made. Yeah, exactly. I was going to like, I always try to advocate for birds as well. Uh, you touched on a good subject, like window collisions are a huge thing. Cats are the number one killer of birds. So uh, windows are number two, but cats, keep your cats indoors, please. I'm a huge cat lover, but cats are invasive species. They're hunters. They kill for sport. They kill for fun. And uh, certain countries have actually have super, uh, they have a, a huge issue with feral cats taking down migratory species. Um, window collisions, light pollution. So turning off your lights, like lights out Philly. It's time to return out all the lights. Um, we're, I talk to people from Comcast or different places that they're, they're working on new structures for buildings or adding decals and windows so birds aren't flying into them. Uh, bird feeders are a great thing as well, setting up uh, nice spots in your neighborhood or in your house so that migratory birds can fly in, land, eat some food, and fly off. Just giving them a place that's safe, of course, to eat and stuff like that. So there are ways that we can help out. But unfortunately, there's a lot of, like I said, things going on that do affect our bird species here. Another thing I might add is that in the city of Philadelphia, there's been an increase of certain types of birds, which may contribute to not seeing as many active birds, and that is uh, predatory birds, like the peregrine falcon, 
whose population has really rebounded since we've started to take care of their population uh, by stewarding them and significant conservation efforts. Um, and also the Cooper's hawk has benefited greatly from cityscapes and the birds in cities. And so a lot of times, I know uh, there in uh, Philadelphia, uh, if you don't see as many birds around, perhaps start looking around for Cooper's hawks or even the peregrine because um, it doesn't, I, I'm sure you see this all the time down here. I do when I am in town. My son lives here uh, not far from uh, the academy and he's always telling me about the Cooper's hawk he sees targeting some of the birds and, and so it does change the behavior of some of the birds. So that's another contributing factor perhaps. Yeah, I think it's really important to highlight those conservation success stories because it does feel overwhelming sometimes when we're constantly barraged with all this bad news. But like in our lifetimes, there have been enormous success stories. I mean, you talk about the, the banning of DDT and the uh, it's the response of the raptor population, and not just raptors, but double-crested cormorants, American white pelicans, all these birds have, have, um, have benefited from that. You know, these are, birds are remarkably resilient if we give them the chance to be resilient, and we just need to give them those chances. I just want to um, acknowledge um, that the four folks we have sitting on the stage, um, might this might not have happened just a few years ago. And I, I think one of the critical things that has happened um, with the growth of, growth of birding has been the growth of people of color um, in and uh, LBGTQ populations. And in some areas, like DVOC, our wonderful bird club, women as well. Uh, DVOC didn't admit women until 1983. But I do think the Christian Cooper event in um, the park in New York was critical and it catalyzed that. I don't need, to, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here, but uh, Black Birders Week, um, the events here at the Academy. Um, and I think it's just absolutely heartwarming to see um, the increase in diversity at the Heinz Refuge with Lamar Gore as the manager. Um, and I think we're moving toward, you know, my hope, I'm, I'm idealistic, and see what you all think, toward reflecting much more the community. And I think Nate used that, that phrase. Um, so just wondered if you want to talk about that. I think it was sort of lingering, you know, it was here in the, in the air, but you hadn't alluded to it specifically. Thank you. Well, um, yeah, Greg, thank you for acknowledging that. I would totally agree. Um, I think that be, there's been a couple different uh, forces at play here, whether that be cultural with some of the events that have occurred that you referred to, as well as the pandemic. But I also see that birding has become much more accessible um, on many different levels, whether that be access as far as uh, people having opportunity to bird in areas that, that for mobility issues that they can access and becoming more aware of that everybody has different needs, um, but also for these different communities uh, to have to to elevate and be able to invite more people and to bring more people into the fold. It, right here in Philadelphia, I'm very proud to be from this region. And I go around the country talking about um, mindful burning and ornotherapy, and I'm always bragging on my hometown here because, because we really do have a dynamic 
trend-setting community um, here in the Philly area. And I think that um, you just have to look around to see all of these uh, new uh, birding groups that are gathering and having events. There's one on Saturday that I was just, um, I, I know that multiple groups are coming together. I think it's Philly Queer Birders, uh, uh, Pennsylvania Accessible Bird, I'm going to say this wrong, PCAS, I know Katie Sampson is in the audience here somewhere and can share about that, but also In Color Birding and um, the Philly uh, Feminist Bird Club are all coming together. And this is the thing, when people come together, uh, birds are our common ground, they're our common language, and they offer us um, so much more as community builders. So um, thank you, Greg, for acknowledging that. I think we're now shining the light on this aspect of birding, which is really super exciting. Yeah, thank you so much for that. Yeah, it all comes down to storytelling as well. We all have a very cool, unique story. And it's not necessarily about just photography. There's so many avenues. When you open up the door, there's people who are great artists, there are poets, there are storytellers. There's people, you ask someone, what does birding or birds mean to you? And everyone has a different you know, perspective of what that means to them. And uh, one of the coolest messages I ever got online, I was uh, when I was growing social media, someone reached out to me, he was another black photographer um, from out west, and he said, dude, like I found your page and you're a huge inspiration because when I scroll through Instagram, it's always like, you know, people are white, 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 white. And like, there's no, I, I don't, I've, I've never seen any like black photographers making it. So like you're a huge inspiration and now I can like follow you and follow your journey. And that like meant a lot. I was like, wait a minute, I guess there aren't many like people like me out there really doing it. And thanks to events like Black Birders, there are people who all around who have similar stories like me who can come here and share and kind of express that feeling. So it's just storytelling. Yeah, I mean, it's just so gratifying to see the many different ways that people can express their interest in birds and be a birder. Um, I think that's been one of the real uh, impactful um, movements of the last decade or so of, in the birding community is that you know, it, there's not just one way to bird, be a birder. You're not the person with the, as much as we love our, our big hats, um, there's not, there's not, that's not the only way. You don't go around and chase rare birds around. Um, but if you all put up a bird feeder, you're a birder. If you enjoy going out and listening to the birds in your yard um, without any care as to what they are, you're a birder. Um, I, I think sometimes people have felt like they've needed almost permission to call themselves a birder or feel like they're part of a community. And um, I, I'm really heartened by this, this growth of, um, you know, of what it means to be a birder. Um, if you wanna follow us down the into the weeds and, and talk about the tertial projections on a second year hybrid goal, like, please, I'm glad you're doing it. That may not be for me, but I'm, I'm glad there are people out there that find that interesting. There's, yeah, there's a million ways to be a birder. There's a million ways to be engaged in our community. And um, yeah, it's, it's been neat to see people that really manifest. Other than a pun, I don't think we could have found a better way to wrap up. There are a million ways to be a birder. Could you give our panel a hand? <laughs> Holly, Anwar, Nate, thank you guys so much. It is almost as if you knew as an audience where we were going to go. Um, here at the Academy, we are interested in creating more windows and more doors into the natural world. And in that vein, we will be celebrating Black Birders Week in the next two weeks to come. And so we just wanted to highlight for you 
that on May 25th, next Thursday, here on this stage, we're going to have a conversation with David Lindo, the urban birder, flying in all the way from the UK to be in conversation with Jason Hall in In Color Birding, flying in. I, that joke went right past you guys. I know, it's getting late. Um, on next Saturday, our second annual celebration of uh, Black, Black Excellence in Blurdings Gala will happen in this room. We really hope that you will come and participate and be part of just the joy of what it means to show up anyway. You do not have to be a Black birder to celebrate Black birders. So please come. And then on Sunday, June 3rd, I've got to read this one because it's really, really hard tongue twister. We have our Flying Full Circle Family Fun Day um, from kindergarten till. Please come and be part. Um, bring your family. Bring your friends. Bring people you don't even really like. And be part of uh, all of our birding shenanigans on that day. I'm going to give it back to Kim. And we want to thank you. Give yourselves a hand for being part of this really wonderful event. Thank you, Maurice. Thank you so much to our panelists. This was wonderful. Thank you all for coming. I have no further remarks other than to say that the exhibition is still open if you have not yet had a chance to see it or you'd like to see it anew after hearing all of this great discussion. Please do. Please come back. Please attend a lot of our other events. And uh, thank you to the ABA. Thank you to Marina McDougall, where she and her amazing team for creating beautiful content that celebrates our birds. And just thank you to our Academy members and the ABA members here in the room who make what we do possible. So thank you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the ABA. You get a lot of great benefits, including our fantastic magazines, birding, and North American birds discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Beauty of Books, and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Technical production is by John Lowry, who spent far too much time filtering out the songs of Vario's from the panel discussion. Not, not the one that you're thinking of, actually, but rather Liberty Bell's Vario. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon, who identifies Ross's goal by its pinkish hue and Betsy Ross's goal by its red and white stripes. You can find us online at ABA.org and on social media most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA. The way I see it, Rocky refers to the Stallone statue in front of the art museum and Rocky II refers to the rock pigeons that perch on it. Questions, comments can come to podcast at ABA.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thank you so much for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. Till next week.